0: This podcast is on narrative and great power competition. In this podcast, I'm simply going to introduce a few ideas behind what scholars consider the statecraft and tradecraft of narrative strategy, specifically from the government in Beijing and the government in Kremlin. Michael Pillsbury, known by some critics as a hardliner U.S. scholar against uh, China, believes that the approach that the Beijing government takes is to induce complacency to avoid alerting your opponent. He suggests that Beijing wishes to be patient for decades or longer to achieve victory, that decisive victories were never achieved quickly. He suggests that Beijing looks to manipulate their opponent's advisors, and I'm quoting from Michael uh, Pillsbury here. Chinese strategy emphasizes turning the opponent's house in on itself by winning over influential advisors surrounding the opponent's leadership apparatus. He suggests that military might is not the critical factor for winning a long-term competition. Again, this is from the perspective of the government in Beijing. Rather than relying on a brute accumulation of strength, Chinese strategy advocates targeting targeting an enemy's weak points and biding one's time. He finally suggests never lose sight of qi, something that we'll talk about in a couple lessons. That is the indirect, the unseen, the patient, subversive, and influence strategies that deceiving others into doing your bidding for you and waiting for the point of maximum opportunity to strike. This, he suggests, is a form of qi. According to the New York Times, Chinese approaches each individually are more subtle, winning support for a trade and foreign policy agenda intended to boost its geographic geopolitical standing. And according to a Chinese government spokesperson, that this is a war using the word war with lots of battles. Chinese influence and strategy approaches throughout the world follow certain narratives modernization, trade, and prosperity for all, claiming a non zero sum game, a win win. But perhaps, according to some scholars and critics of the government in Beijing, what they say their quote-unquote weaponized narratives are incongruent with their actions. Critics suggest that they are a totalitarian, profit-driven capitalist regime with predatory loans to desperate governments with a a view towards a future supposed sea and land highway systems that will unlikely truly be free. According to some, the president of China, its leaders in general, uses Western foundational narratives, that is respect for sovereignty and anti-racism, to attempt to influence or pre-influence people. So that way people criticize China, they can say, oh, you're doing it out of racism or you're not respecting our sovereignty. That is critics internationally. Chinese influence and in a narrative approaches seem to differ or be specific to each region, country, and province. In Australia, for example, there are a number of recent scholarly articles that claim that they could become victim to a slow-burn, thousand-prick approach to try to influence Australian politics. In its totality, there perhaps could be signs of potential strategic effects eventually, and each tactic is a differing level or differing shade of gray of subtlety, risk, deniability, indirectness, and insensibility. That at one time in Australia there were Confucius Institutes, which we'll discuss, that some academics claimed censored criticism of Beijing. That there were, one time, quiet, direct, and indirect donations to actual political campaigns that there have been tracking and warning systems of Chinese nationals in Australia, as well as Chinese study abroad students, to tow the Beijing line. And China offers a number of free news outlets in the Chinese language that parrot state media biases, specifically on those Chinese Australians that perhaps may struggle a little bit with reading English. Now I want to move to the Kremlin and active measures, and you will see over the year some similarities, especially as the Kremlin has, war, has learned a lot from Eastern approaches and specifically Chinese approaches to warfare. I specifically want to talk about narrative with regards to Chi- or excuse me with regards to Russian active measures. The mindset of active measures. It includes that the best defense against subversion is offensive subversive strategies against adversaries, competitors, and even allies. Governments of Russia have often sought geographic buffer to stave off influence or invasion. From the Mongol invasions to Napoleon to Hitler, Russian governments often appear to value survival as a moral and national imperative in and of itself the goal of survival, justifying an array of ways and means. Also, to survive, the Kremlin appears often to favor order over other priorities. A strong FSB, stronger than their SVR, which we'll discuss if there's time in plenary, and keeping citizens confused or reminded of the chaos of the world outside Russian borders, in order to make them want a strongman savior, appears to be a road towards this order. Although Russia disinformation is played up in the media, the vast majority of influence in narrative warfare, that is the time, the money, the personnel, and the effort that the Kremlin take is offline, in person. Some analysts suggest that online disinformation may, at times, perhaps be a purposeful distraction, essentially subterfuge, make us focus on online disinformation, why offline, in-person influence, uh, and narrative warfare is occurring. According to Mark Geliotti in 2019, and I quote here, The Kremlin has embraced a sense that Russia faces a Western campaign of subversion and that using active measures are the best and most logical response. Active measures make use of Russian strength to exploit perceived Western weaknesses, from its divisions to its commitment to free speech and open politics. He warns, though. Of course, this does not mean that every Russian individual or institution is necessarily involved in active measures. Most are not. And furthermore, most of the initiatives generated should not be considered active measures, as they are often overt and well within the usual norms of political activity. However, the crowning irony, according to Mark, is that It has become very easy for foreigners to see the Kremlin's hand behind every reversal, every trip, every Russian initiative. This has an undeniably baleful impact on international relations, but at the same time likely suits Putin well, crediting him with more influence and impact in the world than he and his Russia truly deserve. Perhaps this is the greatest active measures of all.